Real estate investment is sexy. Anyone can like it. But if you want to be successful, you got to get serious about the business. Unless you come to the game with a lot of capital to deploy, you are running a business. And so you need to get serious about it. You need to get educated. You need to get competent. Best ever listeners, wouldn't it be nice to have a $2 million pre-approval line of credit? Ah, Just think about that. Isn't that nice? Wouldn't that be nice? How would that help you get more deals done? Because when you submit a pre-approval line of credit with your offer on a fix and flip house, do you think it's going to stand out more? I think so. And our friends at Fund That Flip, you know Fund That Flip, Matt Rodak, he's been on the show before many times. He's a friend of mine. He's also the owner of Fund That Flip and they're a sponsor of today's episode What they're doing is they're giving a $2 million pre-approval line of credit up to $2 million pre-approval line of credit for qualified buyers. And my gosh, in this competitive buying market, sellers prefer to sell to buyers who have a high likelihood of closing, right? Makes sense. Well, use this pre-approval line of credit from Fund That Flip and that will signal to the seller that you're the real deal and you'll be able to close quickly. It's free. All you got to do is go to fundthatflip.com. You've got to qualify that you have prior experience and there's a process, but it's free and you need to go to fundthatflip.com to get the pre-approval line of credit because this is a way that's going to help your short-term rehab loan happen because you're going to get the deal for the property where you need the short-term rehab loan. Go to fundthatflip.com and get that pre-approval line of credit for up to $2 million. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is a show where we cut out the fluffy stuff and we only talk about the best real estate advice that moves your business forward. We've spoken to Barbara Corcoran from Shark Tank, Robert Kiyosaki, the author of Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and a lot of other best ever guests. With us today, we've got someone who controls $8 million in his buy and hold portfolio. How you doing, Mike Nuss? I'm very great, Joe. Thanks for asking. Thanks for having me. Yeah, nice to have you on the show, my friend. A little bit about Mike, and then he'll get into it in more detail. Mike is a licensed appraiser. He's been a licensed appraiser for 18 years now. He's the founder of Rare Bird, the real estate brand, which is comprised of five companies. He's based in Portland, Oregon, and you can check out his website, which is a work in progress, he said, uh, at myrarebird.com. And I'm just very much looking forward to digging into your brand and these five companies and the $8 million of buy and hold portfolio that you got. So let's get into it. First, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on? My career started really in high school. I took spring break and job shadowed uh, my uncle, who had a, a, a growing real estate appraisal company at that time, fell in love with the industry. And so the Monday after I graduated from high school, um, I moved to Portland and then jumped right into real estate appraisal. And so that was really my focus from 1997 until 2002. I bought my first house in 2003. That was actually through a short sale, which I didn't really even know what a short sale was at the time. 
I got the bug to buy real estate in 2002, and this just kind of fell in my lap until one day I got a phone call from Tile Company saying, hey, your short sale's approved, you're ready to close. And, and, and that's kind of what started off my house purchasing career. In 2004, I started my own appraisal company and started making good income and had really good credit. And so 2005 to prior to the crash, that's when I began a very uneducated investment career with very surface level knowledge. So from 2005 to 2007-ish, late 2007, I, bought, I built a $2 million buy and hold portfolio before the crash. And then obviously when the crash hit, being an appraiser, that affected income greatly. And so in 2009 is when I made the decision to get into real estate investing full-time, um, bought my first real estate education package in 2009, and then dove full-time into real estate in 2010. Just like most people, I was starting as a wholesaler flipper model because of the crash, didn't have great credit, because I purchased an expensive real estate education package, didn't have a lot of money. So like everyone else that gets started without those types of resources, I started in the wholesaling and flipping world. Met my current business partner in 2010. We officially partnered up in 2011. And then from 2011, it was strictly kind of building on that lump sum nest egg of, of short-term flip projects, land development projects, new construction, some creative financing, bought a couple rentals. But really, it was just building the resume of, of being a good, well-qualified real estate investor and getting that snowball built. In 2012, we started hosting breakout meetings for our local RIA group, which was good for us. It was a great way to, for us to start getting back. And then when you start educating other people, you learn vast information in a short period of time. So that kind of put us on another growth curve. Fast forward to 2014, we launched our brand. We were just a small corporation at that time. Then we launched Rare Bird so we could bring service-related companies in the real estate industry alongside of our investment brand. So that's when we launched Realty, Property Management, and Education. And then recently, we, we launched the construction side of that business. So the past two years, we've seen a ton of velocity from having more brand recognition and then that snowball you build up from the flipping and wholesaling and land development put us in a good point where we could start building that buy and hold portfolio. So 2014, I think we had four to six units that we owned in the Portland area. And then fast forward to now, we've got you know 35 units that we own, all close in high demand Portland locations. And like you mentioned, a portfolio value of about $8 million on the buy and hold side. We still do short-term projects. That's our bread and butter. We do single-family flips. Um, we do new construction. We still do land development. We do some consulting and, and other areas like that as well. But the goal at this point in our career is to get into the commercial world. We bought some commercial property as well and, and, and really just build wealth through that buy and hold portion of our, our business. So you went from six in 2014 to two, about two years later. And by the way, I was smiling ear to ear as you were talking, because only an appraiser or an accountant would give us this detailed timeline of year by year. This is how you've gotten to where you're at. So I love the detail-orientedness of how, how you operate. From 2014 to 2016, you went from 6 to 35 units. How did you go from 6 to 35 in two years? 
We hired a business coach late 2013, specifically a real estate coach. And, and really what I'd say how is we got focused. And that's the big shift is we, we got focused in our tent and what we wanted rather than just looking for deals, looking for a way to be successful and getting spread out across the Portland metro area. We focused our efforts into about a three square mile radius, super high demand real estate, ton of competition. But by staying focused, you take the research portion of your business out. You take all those time-consuming activities and you focus that time into being laser-focused on what it is that you want to do. So that, along with building confidence in our capital partners through the flipping portion of our business building, as well as becoming bank financeable, is what pushed us, jumped us into that world of being able to buy, hold, and control property. And quite frankly, once you do a good job of repositioning a multifamily asset in the Portland market, you can create so much equity and value from that, that it just becomes very repeatable because of the success you can show from that. So that's kind of how we sprung board into that. What's the largest deal in terms of units that you have right now? We bought a sixplex. um, Well, you close on that like a month ago. That's our largest single building. And then we own a mixed use parcel, which is, it's actually two properties. It's a, a fourplex, a house, and then a storefront right next to each other. So that's seven units. So six, seven units is the largest property at this point. You mentioned that you got your capital partners to continue to have confidence based on your previous experience. That leads me to believe that you're raising money and buying these with investors. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, so it's either you know short-term loan while we, we borrow cash from a private money individual, reposition the asset, then refinance out with a bank loan, or you know creative financing, seller-type financing deals. We do 100% on our own. But some of those larger projects, it's really created taken a lot of capital. We've gone in as equity partners with lending individuals. So we're doing all the work. We're doing all the heavy lifting. They're bringing in all of the funds, and then we are spreading that benefit out accordingly. Will you give the numbers on one of those projects where you have the equity partners? We bought a fourplex uh, beginning of 2015, $800,000 purchase. We actually went in equity and a credit partner with the same individual. They brought in the down payment. And then they co-signed on the loan with us, got a conventional 30-year loan. Then we financed the rehab portion of it. So right now we're about $860,000 into this investment that's worth $1.2 plus. Um, you know, a premier fourplex in inner Portland. There's only a handful of those around. So that, that's one example. And, and you, you do that once for, <laughs> for an investor. They like that. And so then they continue to come back to you. And then they continue to tell your, their friends about you. And we've been able to turn some other flip investors into equity partners on other projects as well. How do you structure that one in particular, the 800K purchase? How do you structure it? That's a special case where we actually created an actual LLC with that partner. So we're managing members. They're they're just regular members. Typically, we really want to have a borrower-lender relationship. So we restructure as much as we possibly can through a borrower-lender relationship. For more complicated deals, though, we'll actually 
create an LLC and, and then own property together through that company. And on that one example, what's the ownership breakdown? Is it 50-50 or is it split differently? No, 50-50. 50-50. Okay. No preferred return or anything like that? We do give them a preferred return on their capital Okay, that's put into it. And do you do any legal documents as far as a PPM or anything? No, these are all accredited investors that we've already had previous relationships with, and we don't do it on a large syndication level. So we hire attorneys to, to draw up our, our um, LLC agreements. But at this point, we haven't had to go to that level of, of syndication PPM. Are, and are those uh, the money partners passive in the deal? Extremely passive. They, they want nothing to do with the day-to-day operations. Got it. Okay. You might want to talk to a securities guy. Just double check because I can't remember the person I interviewed. But, oh, you know what? It was Gene Trowbridge. That's who I interviewed. And when I spoke to him about this in particular, he mentioned that if it is passive, then there's some sort of securities needs to be in place. But anyway, that, that's, an, that's an aside. With these deals, you've got partners, but ideally, and I love this, where you're working with uh, the lender relationship, like the you, you want them to loan you the money, then you use that to do the rehab, then you put long-term bank financing on it. How do you find investors for that versus them wanting the equity partnership? And I ask for selfish reasons because I do multifamily syndication where I raise money from investors, buy apartment communities, sharing the profits. And my business model is bringing them in as limited partners, but equity partners, where the best business model, though, the most profitable business model is the one that you described. It's obvious because there's no upside for the investors, but rather they get a fixed rate of return, which a lot of people like. But how do you get investors like that versus the partnership one? So how do you bake the cake and eat it too? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, for us so far, it's been just a deal volume and price scenario. So we buy 10 to 15-ish properties a year. And from those, we sell six to eight and try and hold on to the others. So we have a limited amount of properties we can put investors into. And quite frankly, we just have more investors than we can put to work right now. And so our investors want to work with us. We're a pretty good magnet for private money at this point because of our reputation, how we treat people. But if you want to work with us, we don't have a ton of projects. You know, We don't have an infinite amount of deals. So if you want your money to get put to work, this is how we can do it. Mm. And then the other portion of it is we're not going to equity partner on just any Joe Blow. Who we own property with <laughs> is is a very highly investigated isn't the word, but you know, scrutinized selective, very highly selective in that. Yeah. We, we don't want to, we both me me and my partner, we've had bad partners in, in, in the past. And so we're very selective in who we actually partner with. So that hasn't become a partner, a problem to us yet. You know, I look forward to the day where we're in your shoes and, and it becomes a problem. So it's worked out for us and it's just kind of by chance of deal volume and, and, and dollar amount required. Let's talk about your focus on the three square mile radius where you said there's lots of competition, but it minimizes significantly the amount of research you need to do because you know the area because it's so darn small. Right. If you're not doing research on what rent should be, what the property looks like, 
pulling the information. What are you spending your time doing that gives you the leg up? The past month or so, we've been really kind of focused on the 10x portion of our business. And so it's been more business meetings, trying to get our smaller companies rolling better. But the ideal scenario, which what I've tried to create and what I've done lately a lot is just spending more time in the neighborhood, driving for dollars is one one use of that time, meeting more sellers, meeting more investors. But I think what I talk about when the research levels are lowered is because I'm up to date with market rent. You know, when you have 35 units and you're turning units over on a consistently monthly or bi-monthly basis, you know what market rent is. By staying in the neighborhoods, well, I see when a property's bought, I see when it goes back on the market, and I see what it sells for. So I'm consistently up to date with what my competition's doing. I know what they're paying for property. I know what their rehabs are like. I know what they're reselling their properties at. I know what their days on market is. I mean, it's after the point where I can tell by paint colors who's flipping that project. So it's just getting that intimate knowledge of your marketplace is, is far more valuable than I think people really realize. So we can transact quickly. And I can know what my offer is going to be before the door opens on a lot of homes. And then it's kind of a cat and mouse game of how much information you release while you're building rapport and, and how quickly you want that negotiation to go. And I do research. When I have a new property under contract and it's time to start doing due diligence, you know, I then heavily look into value and I update myself heavily on rents. And But from your gut check, is it's pretty close on at that point. So it eliminates a lot of that extra work. You said earlier that you're getting into the commercial world and you already have because that seven unit property that you mentioned earlier, the fourplex, the house and the storefront um, or the mixed use rather. Are you staying within that three-mile radius? Yeah, it didn't start that way. Our first commercial project was a little tiny standalone 1,000-square-foot building in Hillsboro. Bought it, paid too much for it, got some excellent owner finance terms, sat vacant for a year. So that was our first intro to the commercial world. And which, that's, that's how far away is Hillsboro from? Yeah, Portland? it's 20 miles from our marketplace. Okay. So it becomes a management nightmare, especially when it's vacant for a year. So that was our first step into it, and we bought that in 2012. Last year, we bought a car wash, and the goal was to turn the car wash into a food cart court, which is really common in Portland. Turn the car wash bays into seating areas and have the lots surrounded with 16 food carts, and it was going to be our food cart court. But we got caught up in some ridiculous permitting requirements and cost elevated, so we flipped that commercial property, which was a great gain for us. It worked out really well. But no, and, and then that other mixed-use project we bought in squarely in the middle of our target market. So the commercial world definitely is inside of that three-mile radius. And, and really what it is, it's heavily focused on what land value is. And our acquisition strategy is buying properties now that can cash flow or at least at the minimum pay for themselves now as an interim use and then eventually start building larger mixed-use projects, maybe a couple of high-rise developments later on down the road. That's interesting. So you have identified a three-mile radius, and you're looking for acquisitions from single-family home to commercial, anything, whereas most people say, you know, I want to buy multifamily properties, and now let me pick a market. But you're doing the reverse. You have not only a market, but you have a 
three mile radius and you just want to buy stuff within that three mile radius, regardless what it is, as long as the numbers make sense. Exactly. Wow. That's, that's, that's you mentioned the car wash and you're going to convert it into a, a food cart court. How are you able to know the analysis of all different types of commercial real estate? Because I mean, you know, I, I th- that you've got multifamily I mean, you're an appraiser, so you got all sorts of sorts of types. Is it from your appraisal background? Yeah, that's the foundation of it. And then just surrounding myself with people that are smarter than myself. So the first thing we did when I thought of that food cart idea was I went and hired a food cart consultant, a local guy who's well known in the food cart industry and just said, hey, this is what I got. What do you see? He liked the vision worked out a consultant agreement, and then he helped us develop a plan. So that's really what it goes into. And then I'm a firm believer of of knowing people that are smarter than you. And so when we bought the mixed-use project, it was talking to some other commercial brokers, some some big-wig commercial brokers in the area and running our idea with them and our plan with them. And, you know, this is how we're crunching numbers. And they say, no, that's not quite right. This isn't residential. It's triple net. You need to adjust it for this. And so there's definitely a learning curve going on there. But, you know, the commercial world, before we bought that mixed-use project, we were looking for a project like that for 18 months to almost two years' time. So we had a long time there to really sharpen our swords until the right opportunity showed itself. What didn't that food cart consultant tell you that he or she should have told you that resulted in not being able to do the conversion? Nothing on their end at all because they're not a land-use specialist. It was poor timing on our fault. Uh, I was going down to the city of Portland on a consistent basis, which is, you know, that's just signing up to go bang your head against a wall for hours upon hours. The city was working with a non-published working draft of what they wanted food cart courts to look like. Oh, God. Um, yeah. And, and so they have the information, but they don't tell you the information. So, you know, we for example, we planned on doing two, maybe three grease traps on site. They wanted 16 grease traps on site. We were going to, and I was told that we could do it just like every other food cart in the court in the city of Portland. We were going to do porta potties for restrooms. Well, since we were a use conversion, we had to have structurally engineered restrooms and the sewer had to go through the grease traps. And it was just so much earthwork. I mean, the reason we bought a car lot is because all the infrastructure was there. Well, once we got into it, we had to rebuild a lot of that infrastructure. So it just didn't pencil at that point. We could have made it work. It would have worked. It just wouldn't have created the amount of cash flow that we wanted out of it. And it's starting a whole other business model when we already had have five business models. Mm-hmm. And at that same time, we had an offer come in for significantly higher than what we paid for the property. We had two other long-term buy holds in escrow trying to figure out how are we going to fund that $1 million plus dollar in, in transactions. Just got some advice from a, a tax exchange attorney, and they said based on our intent that we had established, they were confident we would succeed in a 1031. So we just kind of took the money and turned it into 10 more units. How much did you buy it for and what did you sell it for? Uh, 650 and 860 And did you put any money into it? Um, 15 grand, something like that. 20 grand. And what was the time frame? Uh, about six months. What did the buyer plan on doing uh, with they're it? Gonna, they're going to build a mixed-use project there. 
So it'll be a 40,000 square foot storefront on the main level and then three stories of residential above. So they'll probably get 60 units in it, 60 residential units and, and, and a handful of commercial units. Are they having to rezone it? Zoning's in place and it's high traffic count, great street, great location. It's just outside of the inner core, but heavily inside of the redevelopment zone. Trader Joe's got kicked out by some local groups lately in the area. And, and so, you know, there's gentrification where it gets used in that neighborhood a lot. So it was a great project. They're going to be very successful in it. You know, we just weren't at the point in our career where we could build a project like that. Otherwise, we would have been happy to do it. Mike, what's your best real estate investing advice ever? Oh, that's it's a very broad question. So I got to give you a broad answer. I see so many people that don't really get serious about the business. They get excited about what real estate can do. Real estate investment is sexy. Anyone can like it. But if you want to be successful, you got to get serious about the business. Unless you come to the game with a lot of capital to deploy, you are running a business. And so you need to get serious about it. You need to get educated. You need to get competent. Get competent in the fundamentals of real estate. Get competent in the fundamentals of real estate law. Know your market values and your market rents better than anyone in your area. Understand what your resources are. Learn how to go through escrow. It's ridiculous how many people want to get subject to deals under contract but don't even know how to open escrow. So we're in an industry where we're dealing with people's most valuable assets in their entire lifetime. And that needs to be taken seriously in order to do a good job of truly being a solution to the people we work with. What's the main thing that you learned as an appraiser that you apply to your business right now? The retail world of real estate is the tip of the iceberg. What do you mean by that? If you just focus on what's listed and what market value is and you miss what's going on behind the scenes on off-market transactions and all the networking that takes place and double closings, there's so much more to list a property, find a buyer, get it inspected, get a bank loan, that what's drilled into us as appraisers. So really, I learned a lot from appraising, but what I learned was what I did not know. You ready for the best ever lightning round? Yeah, let's do it. All right. First, a quick word from our best ever partners. Best ever listeners, Matt Bowles, who was a guest on episode 289. His company, Maverick Investor Group, has a special report just for you on how to avoid the seven biggest mistakes in real estate that investors make in the 2016 boom cycle. Get yours free at maverickinvestorgroup.com forward slash best ever. That's M-A-V-E-R-I-C-K, investorgroup.com forward slash best ever. Best ever book you've read? Uh, with one book, I got to go to the Bible. Best ever personal growth experience, what'd you learn from it? Bankruptcy and childbirth. Bankruptcy happened in 2008? 2011. So I actually made it through the crash, but I had a poor choice of partners right after the crash where the end result of that was I had to end up filing bankruptcy. And what'd you learn? Um, get competent. I mean, really my bankruptcy started by the crash and that was just because I wasn't competent about investing. Getting market rent at 1400 and having a PITI of 1250, that's not net cash flow. <laughs> and, and you learn those lessons as you start losing tenants and values go down and, and whatnot. So I had such a surface level of education, which helped me build a half a million dollar net worth in a couple of years. But it also set me up for a huge crash because I really didn't know what I was doing. 
best ever deal you've done? We did a, a national historic registry property where we put it on a, the historic registry, did a complete historic renovation to it, did a tax freeze, got a 10 year tax freeze, super high rent, super high value, excellent project, super sexy. And I love to know that we're paying $1,400 a year in taxes when we should be paying $8,000 a year in taxes. <laughs> best ever way you like to give back. We've partnered with a local nonprofit organization called These Numbers Have Faces. They work with young entrepreneurs in Rwanda on the African side, and then in the American side, they pair angel investors for micro loans, and then they also educate the investor, the the entrepreneurs that those loans go to. So, my partner went to Rwanda last year. We'll both be going this year. We've done a couple of fundraisers here for them, but that's that's a big one for us. What's the biggest mistake you've made in real estate? Man, um, the biggest mistake I've made in real estate, trusting the wrong individuals, which is my fault, by the way, <laughs> I went up to that, but that was by far the, the, the biggest mistake. What are questions or a question that you ask now that you weren't asking before to prevent that? How much experience do you have and references that will speak to that? What's the best place the best ever listeners can reach you? Um, cell phones, 503. Seven eight nine nine eight two one, and my email address is Mike M I K E at myrarebird.com. How'd you pick Rare Bird? You know, we hired a branding agency, and, and we didn't really like what was happening, so they ended up giving us their short list of all the the names they had thought of. <laughs> Rare Bird was on it. I liked it. My business partner liked it. We were working with two other individuals. At that time, they all liked it, and, and so we ran with it. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> well, Mike, uh, thank you for being on the show and sharing your best ever advice with the best ever listeners. And the timeline progression that you shared with us, thank you for that. It, it helps for people like myself who take notes during these calls and get an idea of how you progress and where you're at. The focus that you have on the three-mile radius I've interviewed, I think, one other person who has a very narrow focus from a geography standpoint, and he's just doing really well. And I love the focus of the three-mile radius, only buying properties, and then figuring out how to either bring on consultants. I mean, clearly with your appraisal background, you've got the foundation. But if you're doing something like food cart court conversion, then bringing on a food cart consultant and just figuring out how to make the best use of those properties that you're snatching up within that three mile radius. Super narrow, narrowly focused. And I think that is a really refreshing approach and really interesting. So thanks for sharing that. And then also the bankruptcy, it probably still stings, but I imagine it's the best learning experience that you've come away with and it's allowed you to get to where you're at now. And then also the questions that you ask for potential business partners. How much experience do you have? And can I have some references that speak to it? And I've actually heard someone say they not only ask for references, but then they ask those references for references so that they can get another level of distance from the original person because it might be a more um, forthcoming 
conversation than their their personal references. Yeah, and I would also add probation periods on top of that. So before you actually commit, try to do a working relationship that isn't a full commitment prior to. That's worked out with us on a couple of um, individuals as well. Well, thank you again, Mike, for being on the show. Hope you have a best ever day, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Joe. Have a wonderful afternoon. Best ever listeners, Matt Bowles, who was a guest on episode 289. His company, Maverick Investor Group, has a special report just for you on how to avoid the seven biggest mistakes in real estate that investors make in the 2016 boom cycle. Get yours free at maverickinvestorgroup.com forward slash best ever. That's M-A-V-E-R-I-C-K investorgroup.com forward slash best ever.